When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. This is a special bonus episode of Let It Roll, and I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Once again, I'm speaking with music historian Ed Ward about his book, The History of Rock and Roll Part 1, 1920-1963. Our original plan was to do 10 episodes, but 1956 was just too epic to cover in one hour, so we're expanding the whole season to 11 episodes. The big theme of this episode is the rocky and yet productive relationships between African-American recording artists and the Jewish entrepreneurs who brought their work to market. We'll be talking about the relationship between James Brown and Sid Nathan of King Records. Ed calls Sid the man who did everything wrong and still made it, including only releasing James Brown's first hit, Please, 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 in order to teach his A&R men a lesson, because Sid was sure this was the worst record he'd ever heard and it would be a flop. Instead, it was the hit that gave James Brown his start. We'll also cover the tragic relationship between the gifted 13-year-old Frankie Lyman and his gambling-addicted record mogul, George Goldner. Goldner had a great ear for talent and knew how to promote a record, but his vices meant that his artists inevitably ended up in the clutches of the mob, and poor Frankie was no exception. We'll also be covering Lieber and Solar and the songs they wrote and produced for groups like The Coasters, The Drifters, and many more on Atlantic Records, Jimmy Reed and the Chess Brothers, and the mystery of why so many doo-wop groups had the word Dell in their name. Be sure and go to our website, LetItRollPodcast.com, to hear the YouTube playlist of the music we're discussing. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to the show. After a short break, we want to return and talk about James Brown, who finally, or not finally, but he gets to King's records and he records Please, 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 which Sid Nathan does not want to put out. Sid Nathan is a great index of things you shouldn't do to have a successful record company, and yet he had a successful record company. He would do the wrong thing, and um, then somebody would correct him, which you really... He was he was a... just had a violent temper and was by all accounts a, a very unpleasant man um but uh so what happened was henry glover who was one of his talent scouts had uh, heard james brown and the famous flames uh out on the road somewhere and said oh the, this guy's doing stuff that uh, nobody else is doing and, and so he brought him to uh, king records in cincinnati and recorded this please 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 which is actually just a, a sort of radical update of the old blues, Baby, Please Don't Go. Um, but they slowed it down and they emphasized just that one word. And um, so Glover handed the tape over to Sid and uh, then went out on the road doing more scouting. Sid eventually gets around to the tape and listens to it. He, he goes, you're fired, you're fired. What is this? He's just screaming one word. 
And Glover says, well, I, I think you ought to put it out. Uh, I think it's going to be real popular. Put it out regionally because, you know, he, he's got a regional following in the South. And, and Sid goes, just to show you what a piece of shit it is, I'll put it out nationally. And he did. And it exploded. And James Brown is on his way. Yeah, and there, there's James. The only thing was that the famous Flames thought they were recording a song. And when the record came out, it said James Brown and the Famous Flames, which is the beginning of the end for the Famous Flames. But they will take a few more years to uh, to uh, disintegrate. And he'll, he'll keep Bobby Bird to the end, the guy who rescued him from, well, rescued him from prison, but who, with his mother, encouraged James to form the gospel group, the Gospel Flames, and then was real enthusiastic once James was out of the can to uh, go to work with him and help him shape his vision. Yeah, and James Brown had an extremely deprived childhood. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the, those little ghetto kids you go, well, there's no help for him. Uh, you know, stealing cars and, and just being bad, um, which he continued to be, but he was able to make it somewhat socially acceptable, somewhat. Yeah, he was able to channel it into a vision, but he had a hard time coming up with a follow-up to Please, Please, Please. Yeah, I, I don't know how many years it was before he had another hit. But, um, well, part of it was King didn't seem to be real good at promotion. I mean, there's a lot of great black music on King that was only heard later. And, and you know, I, I mean, I don't think that um, James Brown, although some of his subsequent records weren't that good for a while, uh, the Five Royales, um, uh, uh, Hank Ballard, they made more good records than anybody knew about. I I'm really sorry that during my great orgy of acquisition of King Records, I didn't buy more um, Hank Ballard albums because he's he's a really great songwriter and it goes really deep. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to Hank Ballard when he writes the twist and doesn't get the hit version. But um, yeah, King is sort of like the blind idiot guy, just sort of randomly throwing things out there it seems right uh and yet they put together an incredible catalog and stayed in business for a long time i know a part of i think their success in the mid-50s was that they had a really strong uh, country catalog and sid was a little more able to gauge what was good because there was this um sort of grand Ole opry type of show uh broadcasting from across the river in cincinnati where, where king was was based um out of Kentucky, and he he listened very carefully to that show, and um, he was also uh, real interested in getting his publishing empire, named after his wife Lois, um, going because he was um, he knew that that was something you if you owned a song anybody could do that song and you'd make money off of it. Yeah, rental income forever, which is like the holy grail. And another entrepreneur out there is this guy, George Goldner, in New York, who around this time discovers Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. Right. And uh, he, he, was, he was working for, um, uh, for Morris Levy. Uh, and uh, Levy had a number of labels. He uh, was, uh, I think, the main owner of the Birdland Jazz Club, which was the place to play for jazz musicians in New York at that time. And um, Gold, Goldner was helping him find Latin 
bands because uh, uh, one of Levy's real passions was Latin music. A lot of the um, the New York-based Puerto Rican and Cuban music that was huge in the Latin community uh, was on his labels. Um, and so um, anyway, Goldner comes into the office one day and says, hey, I found this group of Puerto Rican kids. They're really good. And... Uh, and go and Levy said, oh, bring them in, you know, record them. So he did, but Levy thought they were um, they were a salsa band, and they weren't. They were a vocal group. So they they came in, and and they had this phenomenal thirteen year old lead singer. I didn't know they were Puerto Rican. I had no idea. Some of them were. Some of them were, but Frankie yeah, Lyman wasn't. Frankie Lyman wasn't. Uh, his brother Lewis wasn't. But I'm trying to remember the names of the other guys in the group. Yeah, Herman Santiago, Billy Lebrano, Jimmy Merchant, Sherman Garns, Frankie Lyman. Yeah, that, so it was it was mixed black and Puerto Rican, but although there are a lot of Puerto Ricans who are very, very dark. That's interesting because, you know, America has the old one drop and you're black thing and, and it, uh, uh, social psych, psychopathology, social pathology. But, you know, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers definitely read as a black Right, but they uh, there is that also that that uh, skin color discrimination among Puerto Ricos. Sure, and Puerto amongst Ricans, the African American you, community, you don't want to look too Indio, as they say. Yeah, and the uh, same thing with the black community. Yeah, you have a whole. Uh, that was one thing I learned in college, hanging out with black friends. All of a sudden, there's this whole spectrum, you know, uh, and and yeah, it's weird. People are crazy about that stuff. But Frankie Lyman has a huge hit with "Why Do Fools Fall in Love." Right. And he's signed by basically the devil and Goldner and Levy. I mean, you know, you say Goldner worked for Levy, but it seemed like the dynamic was Goldner was an enormously talented talent scout and hit finder with a massive gambling problem. Right. And and so eventually Morris would sidle up to go, George, um, you want to sell that label? And I think this happened three times. Um, the, the teenagers were on G. And then there was End, which was another fantastic uh, trove of, of vocal group music later. And I can't remember. I think and there then was, Redbird with Lieber and Stoller. That was was Goldner involved Goldner with that? Goldner was totally involved. He was the A&R guy for that. He rescued oh. them. They got kicked out of Atlantic. Or they had to just, they tried to audit the books at Atlantic. Turns out, <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Wexler never no, forgave no, them no. for that. <laughs> and so they were out on their own. They had a huge pile of what proved to be hit records and songs and demos, but they didn't know the first thing about promotion. They didn't know the first thing about hit making. Goldner came along, looked to their pile of records, immediately picked out, these are the hits. I can promote these for you. And they were off and running. Of course, a couple years later, uh, Goldner shows up with some buddies who want to buy them out for a dollar right and and uh and they took the deal because it was better than having their knees broken right and also that i mean those guys were really talented too they they floated along and and picked up deals where they could because they they had something that none of the other record guys had they had the ability to write hit songs and also to mentor others hit songs yeah well, yeah yeah exactly so they 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 taught songwriting, they taught production, they knew how to do these things. And so having a label, well, you know, either hire them or, or maybe they'll start another one. They had, a, they had another label somewhere down the line, which was really terrible. There wasn't a single 
good record on it. I was that later in the '60s after they ran yeah. out of steam as songwriters. Um, I think it was as they were running out of steam. I, I can't remember the name of it, but I have a a collection of you know yeah. the best stuff from there, and the best stuff from there is not very good. But at this point in time, they are excellent. They're oh, the yeah. height of their powers. And one thing that I thought you kind of gave short shrift to in the book is their work with the proto-coasters, the Robins, before they become the coasters, with the famous Riot in Cell Block 9 um, and Smokey Joe's Cafe. And then they get contacted by Atlantic and want to take this group to New York, and it falls apart, and they reform it as the coasters. Right. Yeah, I, I well, there's only so much of the story you can tell without getting dull. But and I, I always think of those those tunes as being coasters records. Yeah, because they, you know, the Robins became the coasters, and and it was it was a, an example of the quality control that Lieber and Stoller um, did with their acts. That I I don't think of them as being yeah I don't think of them as being the Drifters. Yeah, you know, the no, Drifters no. is a, another act that's also doing Lieber and Stoller songs. Yeah, a very different style of, of songs. But um, this creation of these little playlets is a really novel thing. And you talk about Chuck Berry advancing the artistry of rock and roll lyrics, but Lieber and Stoller are right up there. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, in terms of writing narrative songs, th this is something that I, I think we don't hear much anymore. Um, and it's one of the earliest... Uh, reasons for music existing is to tell a story, you know, Casey Jones or, or, or John Henry, you know, I'm going to tell you about this guy and what happened to him, you know, and, and that goes back, you know, in, in England, you know, Lord Randall and all, all that. goes all the way back to the Iliad or Gilgamesh. I mean. Yeah, right, exactly, because you have a guy come in and sing those things to you. And I, I think I think popular music these days is really poorer for not having as much narrative in it. And, um, all, you know, like Phil Spector used to say he was making little symphonies for the kids. Well, these are little ballads for the kids. Yeah, ballad in the sense of storytelling songs. Yeah, that's what I than, mean, the literal meaning yeah, of ballad. Yeah, as opposed to, to love song. But another thing that's happening around this time that's also telling a narrative, but in a weird way, is these novelty records. The first one you talk about is The Flying Saucer. Right. Well, yes. I think what's happening here is the lower end age for buying popular music is getting younger. I think that, you know, I mean, I started buying records when I was eight. And I, I don't think that five years earlier, you would have found many eight-year-olds buying records. Um, uh, although, and that you'd have to be like, you know, 16, 15, 16, to be one of those kids who sneak into the colored record store and buy the dirty records under the counter, which was essentially what was going on. But by the time I came along in 1957 to buy records, already the, the lower end was uh, was younger. A and so you did have these things like like um, the Flying Saucer, which, which was actually just a goof that these guys perpetrated to... Um, they were going to give them away or sell them to DJs, you know, sort, sort of like you did with party records. Um, and suddenly the, the DJs were playing it on the air because it was, it was something you had to be hip to the records to understand um, fully. Because it's basically what we call sampling later. I mean, you know, yeah. the word line of dialogue and then they 
drop in the big box. Well, the, the, the conceit was that you have a, a newsman on the spot, John Cameron Cameron, which is a reference that nobody will get these days. John, John Cameron Swayze, the uh, famous, one of the f- first newsman on the scene guys on television. A- and um, so he, he's reporting that the flying saucers have landed and the first alien gets out and, and his words to everybody was, O-wop-bop-a-loo-bop-a-lop-bam-boom. So you'd have to know what that was because that's all you heard. Yeah. You know, yeah. they didn't want to get sued, but they did get sued. <laughs> yeah, but they won their case. Yeah, they won their case. Um, and I'm not quite sure how they did that because the um, fair use for parody, I don't think that that uh, court case had been decided. No, yet. that's not decided until Two Life Crew against Roy Orbison's oh, no. estate in the 90s, I think. No, no, no. It was done well before that. Well, they, they had to litigate it again all the way up to the Supreme Ma- Court. I think Mad Magazine um, was was the uh, defendant in, in the... Well, anyway. Yeah. Um, but there was that. And then, you know, you, you could... You, people were starting to play with tape recorders, so you'd speed things up. And, and you get Sheb Woolley, who is like this hack Nashville songwriter, uh, suddenly coming up with... Flying Purple People Eater, yeah, which which was an incredibly annoying song after about the tenth round on the radio. But you you know if you if you had kids, you know I want to watch The Little Mermaid for the three hundred and eighty ninth time, Daddy. You know, bah. well I sure don't, but you know, yeah, you have to sort of do that. And, and, and so these things were actually selling. You got that, and then eventually by Christmas you had David Seville. A.K.A. Ross Bagdasarian, a, um, a, a true superstar in the Armenian American record market. He was actually well known in in Hollywood because he he was the king of the Armenian market. And right up there in Fresno, there were a million Armenians waiting for his next record. Um, so he's playing around, and he he realizes he can layer his voice and then speed it up. And that's how you got the chipmunks. Yeah, first the witch doctor, right, and then and then the Ooh, chipmunks. You, that's right. He he did the witch doctor, which is just one voice. Yeah. Uh, but it was a, a nonsense chorus, a- and um, then then along comes Christmas and and the chipmunks, which turned into a gigantic industry. I believe his sons and daughters are still running that franchise. Yeah, it's a massive media property to this day, and you have to think that the invention of the forty-five. Uh, RPM vinyl disc is the reason, part of the reason, one half of the reason that kids were buying records. Because I just don't see kids buying a 78 that's brittle and breakable. I mean, you know, like... Well, the later 78s weren't. They were got they, better. They, they were, uh, they, I don't know if they were on the same kind of plastic as the 45s, but they, you're right. They were smaller. They were portable. Um, you get that little, <clears throat> excuse me, that little box to carry them around in. Yeah. And, you know... Your box and and my box and his box and her box and we have a party. Yep, and trickle down prosperity, which kids in the '30s were not going to be buying stuff right. because they had no disposable income. Whereas in the '50s, there's lots of money to go around. And it's right, trickling down to Johnny and Susie and buying Chipmunks records. Yeah, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's only ninety eight cents, Daddy. Yeah, right. and if I go to EJ Corvettes, I can get it for eighty nine cents. Yeah, but there's also records that that are sort of in the novelty category, that hold that are a lot more that are different than the Chipmunks, and I'm thinking of Rubber Biscuits, uh, which those those weren't real popular. Yeah, that and, and Shambhala, Shambhalam. No, I can't remember the name of, it, but yeah, Rubber Biscuits was like 
what on earth was that? And and what kind of brain thought that up? I mean, the the chips never had another record, as far as I know. They were probably too busy, you know, going to court to defend themselves against the latest. It was written in a juvenile delinquent uh, facility by the uh, guy who was the lead singer. And But one of that group, Sammy Strain, later went on to Little Anthony and the Imperials and then the OJs. Yeah. So, which, yeah, that's that's quite a remarkable... There's quite a bit of talent involved. And the record's got some real staying power. And to me, it's a precursor of things like Surf and Bird and this sort of psychotic uh, American tradition of, of weird music. Well, you know, it's interesting. The uh, the guy Sheriff, Sheriff and the Ravels, was the band that did Shambalore. That's that's the name of it. Um, and and uh, he was a Caribbean black guy who went on to do a series of surf records, instrumental surf records. So yeah, I mean the the trash men and all that stuff. They were from Minnesota, but um, but you know the, some of these records were made by people that you don't that who weren't what you might think they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's one interesting thing about diving deep into this stuff is sometimes you'll find something that reads as a one hit wonder, but then it turns out somebody involved has a resume that's way more than a one. Right, wonder. Sammy Strain be, being the the one that I found, but who knows who the other Ravels were. Actually, wasn't there a band called the Ravels that was making surf music? I don't know, there's so many. There quite could easily be, there's so many. There's two other things I want to cover uh, before we wrap this 1956 episode. And one is Jimmy Reed popping up on the on the blues circuit. Uh, very different than the Helen Wolf and Muddy Waters uh this laid back style, super simplistic, but has a sells records and has a huge impact on the future Rolling Stones. What What's weird to me about Jimmy Reed is, is not only that, that his records are so simple and anti virtuosic, but that he was almost an immediate hit on college campuses. And this in an era when the emerging folk scene was really down on electric music, so it wouldn't have been the Folkies picking up on him. Uh, I don't really understand this, and I, I, I don't have, I haven't read anything that's made me understand it any better. Um, but I know loads and loads and loads of people who said, "Oh yeah, Jimmy Reed, I, I saw him in college." Hmm. And you know, especially when Brian Jones uh, and the Rolling Stones met the Beatles, Jones and Lennon had a the beginning and Jones and Jagger had an ongoing debate for years with John Lennon about Jimmy Reed. John Lennon just didn't like him at all, but Brian Jones seems like the, that's a college guy right there. Yeah. And that's the prototypical. And so you wonder if they were looking for some sort of perceived authenticity out of Jimmy Reed. I mean, the music's great to me. Yeah. I mean, big boss man, all that stuff. That's, you know, bright lights, big city. Yeah. And and, uh, just classic and and the, the low key shuffle and great guitar interplay with his band. And, uh, very interesting stuff, but sort of a weird outlier. One thing that I think is interesting when you look at this stuff in chronological order, a lot is happening at the same time that you might think was happening earlier. Like when I was a kid in the 80s, I just assumed that the blues happened before R&B, but they're happening at the same time. Absolutely. And there's also a persistence of country blues. You know, Jimmy Reed is in the same line as Lightning Hopkins and John Lee Hooker. Um, 
all of whom are making records that are being aimed at the rhythm and blues market and often succeeding. Um, you, you have um, Bobby Robinson uh, with his Enjoy Records label out of his record store there in Harlem around the corner from the Apollo, and he picks up Elmore James in the mid-60s and has hits with him. Yeah. This is something, something is reaching that audience that's besides the slick, smooth, you know, harmonies and, and the uh, up-tempo dance stuff. There's something elemental about that music, I think, that reaches people. Yeah, and it seems to go from generation to generation yeah. of people. Like, some trends are temporal. They're happening in time. In 1967, everybody puts on narrow jackets and and smokes dope and listens to long playing sophisticated records. But other people are, you know, a subset of people are rediscovering the blues. And it seems like every generation or every few years, there's a new crop of kids that mm -hmm. rediscover the blues. Punk rock is going to have a similar thing later on where, you know, and goth and all kinds of trends right. like that. Where kids today, it seems there's still some things that are popular trends, but a lot of other things is sort of kids looking back at the catalog of different styles and musics and picking out this is what I identify with right now. It took me a long time to get used to 21-year-old deadheads. Yeah, and there were enormous... Jerry is dead, numbers. you guys. You're not going to see this again. <laughs> yeah, then that was a weird thing for me as somebody who was a little bit older than the crop, just a few years older than the crop of kids that were way into the dead in the 90s. And uh, But yeah, it had lasting impact. And, and to me, it's something... An indicator you should take a second look at music that has staying power, regardless of what your initial right. impulse is. And frequently, things that I hear that I go, that is the worst crap ever, end up being my favorite things in the long run. And Rubber Biscuit is one of those songs. This is a song I heard 20 years ago and thought, that is the most ridiculous piece of nonsense. And yet... It is. I it, mean, But it's a great But that's its genius. <laughs> yeah. It is the most ridiculous piece of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and the rhythm and the enthusiasm are just palpable. Um, but one one last thing I want to cover before we get out of this year, uh, we haven't talked about the Dells. I know what. Oh night. yeah, well the Dells have been going since 1952 or something. I mean they were just a really good smooth vocal group who could sing everybody's songs, but couldn't come up with any themselves. Which which it took them a long time to find a, a way to do that. And fortunately, uh, Chess Records was there in Chicago where they came up. And, and when they were finally good enough, they signed them. And that's when they started having hits. Big hits. And it also, I've always wondered this. I don't know if you know this. So I'm going to throw it out there. What is with the word Dell? You've got the Dell Vikings. And, and then later in the 90s, you have the Dell Fuegos and the Dell Lords. What does that word mean? And why was it such a big thing in doo-wop? I don't know. I don't know. I, I think there was a lot of aiming for sophistication without a, a, a knowledge of exactly how to do that. Um, you know, wh why did the five royales put quotes around the numeral five? And that was the real name of the group. Yeah. You know, if, quote five. Yeah. I mean, what, what, is, what is that supposed to be? I mean, the, you, you have, you know, down in New Orleans, you have the Shawis. What is what is a Shawi? For that matter, what's a Vandella? Yeah, I, I, the the guy who turned me on to Motown, black kid from South Carolina, he told me with a straight face, a Vandella is a female gondolier. Hmm. <laughs> Which there are no female gondoliers, but where he came up with that image? Yeah, 
Oh, that's a vivid one. And, and one thing I didn't cover, there's actually two things I didn't cover in this episode I want to get back to. This is the most shambolic episode. But first off, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, when you think about the story of Frankie Lyman, it's a tragedy. I mean, this kid had a huge hit, but... He had several huge hits. Yeah, and and put together some albums. I mean, they did albums or show tunes with him. And very, very early they went to England, which was a brilliant move on somebody's part. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, and some of the songs he he sang were just terrible. Um, I'm Not a Juvenile Delinquent. Yes. Boy, if you can make it through all two minutes of that... You need a medal, <laughs> but um, you know there, there there were others that, that weren't necessarily that awful. Yeah. But um, he, I don't know whether it was he himself or whoever was managing him, he was in a big hurry to get rid of the teenagers, and and they got sort of trampled underfoot in the movement to make Frankie a star, and it all went too quickly. And that was his his downfall. Yeah, and I think I think that's one thing that the, sort of the Beatles' secret weapon was staying as a unified front. And it's much easier to maintain your sanity if there's four of you who are sharing this experience, right? Rather than being alone, like Frankie Lyman. And and there's just something heartbreaking to me about the the idea of this supremely gifted child falling into the clutches of people like Goldner and Levy, right? <laughs> who don't have anybody's best interests at heart, right? You know. you know their own. Yeah, that <laughs> what they perceive as their own. Best right, and, and you know, but you know, there's a million of these kids out on the street. You can use them up and throw them away. You know, that's just no big deal. And, there's always another one. And that that's what happened to Lyman. I mean, within what 15 years, he's dead of a heroin overdose. Yeah, yeah. There's a, actually a very good movie about him, and I, I forget who, what what its name is, but you know, he was married to Zola Taylor. Of the platters. Uh, of the platters, of all the incomprehensible things. Wow. I can only imagine the ego battles, those two. And, yeah, but, you know, when he died, she was one of two women who claimed that she'd been married to him, and she did have the papers. Huh, huh. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it makes you question, like, is this worth it? Like, if you had the choice of being Frankie Lyman, would you choose this evanescent fame and glory and this artistic... You presume he got some artistic fulfillment out of what he was doing. I mean, he's an incredible singer. Well, yeah, and and there's some people who... Michael Bloomfield used this term. I'd never heard it before, but it's it's really something worth considering. A beloved performer. Somebody who cannot exist without the um, response of the audience. I mean, Michael says, Sophie Tucker, man, she has her legs sawed off. And and she's back in Vegas two weeks later. What is that all about? <laughs> and he used that as an example of what he didn't want to be. You know, Elton John was his other example. He says, one thing I never want to be is Elton John. Yeah. No matter how much money, I forget it. And yet Bloomfield comes to his own sad end. You right. Know, well, yeah, but that's... That. That's a whole different. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that uh, when we if we do part two of this series. But yeah, I just I always wonder. I mean, is it worth it to be Frankie? Would you rather be Frankie Lyman as he was, or Frankie Lyman that stays in high school and maybe goes to college and gets a square job and has a couple kids and nobody ever knows his name? Right, they, which happened to a lot of those guys. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and, and or would you rather be Frankie Lyman or Ray Charles? Yeah, which I mean, is an, another 
way that road divides. Yeah, and so many, I mean, and you look at that, Ray Charles is in that category of performers like contemporary James Brown, Sam Cooke, Jackie Wilson, Clyde McFadder, and, and it's very interesting to compare the way they navigated very similar amounts of talent. I mean, these are all incredibly talented, incredibly driven men, and they have to navigate this aesthetic thing. And Ray Charles has a very weird career where he's got these big hit singles like, you know, uh, uh, Create Soul, you know, with I Got a Woman Way Across Town and and later on with What I Say. But at the same time, he's trying to do these albums and Atlantic is really wanting to establish him as a all-around musical genius. Yeah, he's he, he, he made albums. those jazz albums with, with the Milt Jackson and so forth, which are very good. Yeah, but they don't... That's not why we remember Ray Charles. No, but... Had he not gotten impatient, and probably for good reason, with Atlantic and moved on, he might have made more of those jazz albums. But um, what ABC Paramount got him for was his success as an entertainer and his willingness to consider new ideas, which happened with new sounds in country and western music yeah but what sort of locked him into an aesthetic trap after that he's never you know never really an innovative right he has to go looking that. for new forms of pop to inject soul into and eventually become sort of a caricature of his old self yeah and he's he's adored by white people because he very much went out of his way to make non-threatening music he, and to he was a new nut nat king cole yeah whereas james brown goes in the exact opposite direction. Right. And Who, do you feel threatened? Well, then watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so we'll talk about... James Which is why Brown. he, with his Live Live at the Apollo album, became the dangerous colored guy record for high school students. Yeah, you know, for if, white high if, school students. Yeah, for, for white kids, I meant, yeah. And then, and then goes on to be one of the inventors of funk and... Most influential constantly person changing on, on hip hop, and so looking back at that crew, we don't know what Sam Cooke would have done, and he was at a very aesthetic high point at his tragic death. But James Brown emerges head and shoulders above that generation in terms of accomplishment artistically, right? right. Because, well, because he was a road animal, he could not keep off the road, um, because he was a tyrant to his band, and he heard things in his head. That, I mean, he didn't really solicit input from his musicians. He told them what to do, and and in rehearsal, I I know this from Bootsy and Catfish, um, the Collins brothers. Yeah, the who were in a band much later. Joined up with him in I think seventy seventy one. Yeah, somewhere in there, um, but they'd had a band in Cincinnati where they did their own stuff. And when they joined James, it was partially because he heard what they were doing. And so in rehearsal, when he had new material, he wanted their input. But he most of the time he didn't. And so that, that tyrannical thing. I mean, pe people were saying to, to Catfish, you, you, don't, you don't tell James what to do. You know, that's really... And, and Catfish said, well, I'm not telling. I'm just making suggestions. You know, but he was telling him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And it just, uh, to me, that's one of the most amazing things about the James Brown story, because it's not like he, he could play other instruments. I think he could play a little piano. He played organ. He, yeah. he had a he had an argument with, with Sid Nathan, uh, another bad mistake, where James has been touring, and he sees these kids doing this dance. It looks like they're stubbing out a cigarette with their feet. And, he, and he's in, in the break, he says, what is that? And some kids said, oh, it's a mashed potato, James. That's the biggest thing. And so they continue this tour, and everywhere they're going, suddenly kids are doing the mashed potato. So he goes back, and he, he, he tells Sid he wants to do a recording session and record the mashed potato. And Sid says, no! <laughs> in in time-honored Sid Nathan fashion. And, and so James goes and signs with Mercury Records. And his contract says he will only do instrumental music. But somehow, the mashed potato comes out under the name Nate Kendrick and the Swans, who are, Kendrick was James's drummer at the time, and had <laughs> no input in the record other than playing drums on it. Yeah. The, the vocalist seems to be very familiar. But... James also did a lot of instrumental work, and he had Night Train and stuff. That was that was real popular, and there was an ongoing lawsuit. He he did not record vocal music uh, for King for a long time. Yeah, uh, but the thing I was trying to get at was that he was an organist, but it wasn't like he was writing out sheet music, and somehow he's able to convey this very idiosyncratic vision to musicians, and with different musicians over and over again, right. create his, realize his vision, Yeah, you know? And, and that's just an amazing thing and, and an amazing talent. And like you say, not at all an admirable person in a lot of ways, but gave us so much great music and impacted the culture so much. Absolutely. And, and, and very, he, he is one of these constant points right up until the end. He, he's, he's a standard bearer for the cutting edge of black music. Yeah, and and uh, uh, just an amazing impact. And, and this is sort of a, a hard shift in topic, but one thing we didn't cover, we talked about Gene Vincent a little bit, but like James Brown, he had a record company in Capitol that didn't quite get him. At all. Uh, yeah, and, and they you know they do Bebop Lula first hit out of the gate, and they're trying basically to find their own Elvis. Yeah. And they find Gene Vincent, which is pretty good, and he's got this great band, the Blue Caps, with with a, a great guitar player, Gallup. Cliff Gallup, Cliff yeah. Gallup, and who quits fairly soon. But what he does, what they do with him, he ends up doing a, a lot of standards. Like right. And she's sweet, over the rainbow, all these things. And on the one hand, you go, that's kind of a waste of his time and talent, but the records aren't bad. And over in England, you've got the Beatles hearing Gene Vincent doing this, these songs, and it very much legitimizes that old... American songbook tradition in their eyes. Especially with Paul McCartney. Yeah. He, he's the one who attends to that end of it. You know, Although Lennon does Ain't She Sweet when the yeah. Beatles do it. You know, so he's he's in there too. So I find that very sort of a, a, a stealth impact that Gene Vincent had without intending to. Yeah, and also he, he toured over there, which they didn't get many American musicians because of the um, both the American and the British Musicians Union they, they wanted to do a man-by-man man and similar music. So you couldn't take the New York Philharmonic over to London and, and have 
now a debt of 125 British musicians, which you could fill with one crooner and and yeah, Joe one Brown four and the brothers and right one four piece uh, beat combo until you reach 125. That's not the way it worked. You had to do beat combo for beat combo and stuff like that, and uh, so it made it very difficult. Um, to get anybody over there. Plus, of course, the logistics. And it was expensive to fly transatlantic, and there was no other way to get there. Yeah. Well, that's... there was. There were boats, but who's going to wait that long? You might land in Britain, and your record was already dead. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you had Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, Bill Haley. Of course, it hurt Bill Haley's career to go over there, but uh, you know that's just one of those things. But Buddy Holly becomes an enormous, enduring superstar in England because he goes over there. And because Elvis couldn't. Yeah. Or he could, but the colonel uh, was not in favor of it. Yeah, and we'll talk a lot more about Elvis and the colonel in the next two episodes. So one last, I keep saying the last thing, one last thing I want to get to. You do a chapter on <laughs> England with Lonnie Donegan and Tommy Steele and the, the nascent beginnings of rock and roll in England. Which was skiffle, which was American folk music. But up-tempo. Yeah, well, that was the whole, the whole deal. I mean, so the, I guess the Brits are so depressed a lot of the time that you know it's also northern soul which is basically bad imitation motown records but they're you know pepped up and yeah the the whole idea was this jolly sing-along once again anti-virtuosic skiffle was something that anybody could do you pick up an acoustic guitar you make your wash tub basic except you do it with a tea chest and, and um you're good to go yeah, and, and you've got John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page, so many British musicians that have an enormous impact in the 60s start because of Lonnie Donegan. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but then their own efforts to cook up a native rock star, I mean, Tommy Steele does not hold up well. No, I, I, none of them do. E even the, the, the only early British rock that holds up at all is The Shadows. You know, well, without Cliff, Cliff Richard. <laughs> but, but the first Cliff Richard record, Move On, is really good. Yeah, well, that's in part because of the shadows. They yeah. <clears throat> they were a, a electric guitar instrumental group who had their parts worked out. And um, that, I think that was what got Cliff Richard attracted to them. Um, and, and so he, he had this, this group together. But very shortly after... They started working. He was reprimanded and told to tone it down, and he was really into being a star. So, the Shadows didn't play much on his records, or they they played, but I mean they didn't yeah. do anything interesting. But they made their own records, which were interesting. But they weren't able to do that for a while until Cliff had really reached top star status. But see, the deal in Britain was there was a way to do things. And it had been that way since the music hall in the 20s and when radio came and you could feature a vocalist and then that vocalist would make records. And there was there was a way to do A&R. There was a way to make records. There was a way to do management. And why change? Yeah, and Cliff and Tommy Steele presented no threat to that system. Right. Because, and, and you know, we, we were, this rock and roll is very all very well and good, young man, but we do need to make sure that Radio 1 will play this. And that was the deal. Yeah. There was only one radio station, and it was the BBC, and it was owned by the government. 
and and played very little uh, records. They had to play a lot of live music right. because of union regulations and and agreements. So yeah, these guys are sort of in a box. It's a derivative scene, it's right? A secondary scene, but it's bubbling under, and we'll hear more from them. Well, the teenagers are going to start wanting the real thing, especially once the real thing becomes more available to them via Decca Records and, and Buddy Holly. Yeah, and so these records start... <clears throat> and RCA and, and Elvis, for that matter. And it's always fascinating to me that John Lennon is the same age as Cliff Richard and, and takes much longer to, to make his way into the pop scene. Well, he, he was in Nowheresville. He was up in Liverpool. Yeah. You know, he's like, you know, the Billings, Montana scene. What do you know about that? <laughs> Who cares? What comes out of Liverpool? Well, we'll see. So we'll wrap this episode up and uh, call it a day. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll finally get to 1957, the year Ed calls the miracle year of rock and roll. That was the year when even the flop records were classics. Be sure and check out our website, letitrollpodcast.com, where you can access the Spotify and YouTube playlist we've curated so you can listen to the music we've been discussing. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.